Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. So grace for my failures. Like, I never forget this moment. Like, when I think about failure, I go back to the biggest moment in my life where I felt like a failure. And I'm just going to keep it real with you guys. I never forget that it was my freshman year in college, and I had totally blown it to the point that the school did not accept me back. And so I was looking at, and I literally being, I don't know if you know, but being from a Hispanic household, being the oldest, there was this amount of pressure that you got to be the child that sets the example. And so through it all, I remember that it was the lowest point of my life. I'm being kicked out, I'm driving, my parents are driving me up to a new college, and I remember just feeling like, man, what is there to life, man? I don't feel like I've, I feel like I've not just failed in a test, not just failed in a quiz, which I know what that feels like, but I failed in life. And I never forget one night that as I was walking up towards my dorm, I just heard a voice from heaven, and it was pretty much saying my name, and I looked around, I said, this is crazy, I kept walking up, and I heard my name again, and I'm like, somebody's talking to me, and I had no interest in God, I, I, I literally felt the furthest from God, I felt like everything was going wrong in my life, and so I just kept walking up, and I remember hearing for the third time my name, Jonathan, and I remember looking up, and I, and I literally heard this, well, Jonathan, I need you, and I went to my dorm, I just bawled out, I started crying because, to be honest with you, I thought to myself, how could this God want me? The biggest failure ever. I failed in school, I failed, I haven't got nothing right. And so, through it all, I've really come to understand that, like, God loves me and offers me His grace. Even in the midst of all my failures, He wanted something to do with me. And so for that, I'm forever be thankful. And so when I look back at how God has brought me, like I can't but forget how sometimes I became that total failure and how God came and showed his grace upon my life. Every one of us knows what it is to be embarrassed. Some of us know it a bit better than others. My wife, Anita, is a very social person. Those of you who know her know that she's outgoing, gregarious, and wants to include everyone. In fact, one of the things I love, one of the many gifts that she has, is I know if I want to invite someone home for lunch, just bring them. If we have a big crowd coming, there's always another kettle to put on the stove. She's one that includes and enjoys people around us. So we were out one day, she and I. Her husband doesn't have quite the same gifts that she has of including everybody and of wanting to be around a lot of people. But we were out with a great group, group of our dear friends. We had a wonderful time. In fact, at the restaurant, we enjoyed it so much that as it came to the end of the time we were together, I even felt like, you know, we ought to continue this somewhere else. So somebody in the group made a statement like, why don't we go to someone's house? 
It was a woman that sits over on this side of the church somewhere. Why don't we go to someone's house? Now, even I thought that was a good idea until my wife said, yeah, come on over to our house. I thought, oh, my goodness. So I did what any good husband would do. I <clears throat> kicked her under the table. <laughs> well, I mean to say kicked is a bit of a strong word. I nudged her strongly with my leg to let her know, let's move a different direction. Except I kicked the wrong leg. I kicked the woman who suggested we go to someone's house. <laughs> and she looked at me and said, so you don't want us coming over, do you? It's <laughs> like, oh, my goodness. I don't know what I said, but I'll tell you what I felt like I was saying. I felt like I was saying, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I had no idea what to say at that point in time. Some people know what it is to be embarrassed. If you had that experience, your face turns red, you want to duck out of sight, you want to hide, you don't want to be seen, an embarrassing moment. But sometimes we confuse embarrassment with shame. We think that they're one and the same reality. When in fact they're two different realities, as pointed out by the late Louis Smead's Lou Smeads was a, an esteemed professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. And Smeads made the point that embarrassment and shame are two different realities, that embarrassment has to do with an act, shame has to do with a condition. Embarrassment has to do with something that makes us feel socially foolish, while shame has to do with something that makes us feel morally worthless. Smead says that, and then he tells a story. I'd like to read it to you in his own words. It's been some years now since this story was originally written. But listen to what Smeads writes. A couple of years ago, Doris, that was Smeads' wife, Doris and I went to a snug, round theater called the Mark Tapper Forum at the Music Center in Los Angeles to see a performance of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar in a modern setting. It was a matinee performance starting precisely at 2.30 in the afternoon. It so happened that at 2.30 on that particular afternoon, there were exactly two minutes left to play in the deciding game of the semifinals in the NBA championship playoffs. My team, the Los Angeles Lakers, was playing the Portland Trailblazers, and the score was tied when the curtain went up. Looking ahead to this possibility, I smuggled a Walkman inside the theater, put on the earphones, and listened to the staccato play-by-play -play of Chick Hearn, the Lakers broadcaster, while I watched the first scene of the tragedy of Julius Caesar unfold. My wife glanced at me. I thought she was asking me to tell her the score of the basketball game. I intended to whisper it for only her ears to hear. But the crowd at the basketball game was yelling and screaming in my earphones, and I had to make myself heard above the racket, which I did. I yelled, 18 seconds to go, Lakers down by one point. <laughs> Fifteen rows ahead of me, startled patrons turned around, shocked. Mark Antony missed a cue. At intermission, I needed to find a bathroom, and so I decided to make my move out through the lobby. A tyke of a woman, half my size and more than my age, was waiting for me. She blocked my path and hissed that you ought to be ashamed of yourself. 
I told her I was sorry and that it was an accident. No excuse. She just hoped to God my shameful behavior was a momentary lapse and not a pattern of life that I ought to be ashamed of and stand up and apologize to the whole cast. People standing around in the lobby listened to her and watched me. They were on her side. For three days, I felt like a fatally flawed person, standing shamed before the harsh judgment of my cultured superiors. But was it shame or acute chagrin, embarrassment? For a little while, I suffered shame for being an inferior human being, and then, brought back to sanity, I felt embarrassment at simply being a nincompoop in a theater. <laughs> shame and embarrassment. None of us likes to be embarrassed, but we intuitively know that when we go through an embarrassing experience, a little time, a little perspective, a little support from our friends, a little love from our families, and it begins to fade. But not so shame. While embarrassment is tied to an act, shame is tied to a condition. And that feeling that there is something morally wrong with me is very difficult to shake. Edward T. Welch, a Christian counselor and author, tells the experience of, of speaking to a group of seminary students. They were a bit older. There were a hundred of them, and their median age was about 35, a little bit beyond what normally are studying in the seminary. But he said they were mature, they were biblically literate, they were socially conscious and aware, they were matured by some years of ministry. But he was talking with them about shame. And at one point, he said, in his presentation, he asked them, I want to ask if you would raise your hands in just a moment if you have experienced shame. But let me tell you what I'm really asking. I'm not talking about that sense on occasion that maybe all is not well, that maybe something is wrong. What I'm talking about is that intrude into your mind involuntarily on a continuing basis feeling of being morally inadequate and morally flawed. How many of you would dare to say, I have felt that kind of shame? Welch said that in unison, every hand in the room went up. We have felt that kind of shame. Now, I want you to understand what Welch was asking, so let me read you his definition of shame, the definition by which he was working with these students. Here's what Welch writes as he defines shame. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Or to strengthen the language, you are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human. Or you were associated with something less than human. That's shame. One person put it this way. Every one of us has a chapter in the book of our lives which we don't read out loud. And who knows? Some of us may have several chapters. So what do we do about it? Is Welch right? Does the church not say enough, not deal enough with shame and how to heal it? I'd like to take you to a passage of Scripture this morning. 
a passage that I doubt many have read. It's in the Old Testament book, the minor prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. Now, I'll either give you 15 minutes to find Zechariah, or I'll just tell you the page number if you're reaching for a pew Bible, page 1415. Now, don't feel alone. Don't feel picked on. As I was preparing this week, I got to thinking, I don't believe in all my years of ministry that I have ever preached a sermon on the book of Zechariah. It's just not one that we often read. Now, we might wonder why, because the truth is, this little 14-chapter book has more to say about the Messiah, more messianic content in it than any other Old Testament book except the massive 66-chapter volume called Isaiah. In fact, it's quoted more frequently in the New Testament, referred to by Jesus and others, this book of Zechariah. So as we go to Zechariah 3, we have to set a bit of the context so we know where we're touching down, where we're landing, what the setting is. So understand that when Zechariah ministers, it's been about two decades since the people of Israel have returned from Babylonian exile. They have returned to a land that is devastated. The temple still lies in ruins. There is so much yet to be rebuilt. The people are discouraged and depressed. They're wondering, is there anything ahead for us? Does God still care for us? What about all these nations that are oppressing us? What can we do? They're eking an existence out of a parched, dry land. But of all the challenges they faced, none was more piercing than the challenge of their spiritual condition. They were not in good shape. And that's what we're going to read about this morning. Now, the specific context of what we're going to read is a vision. It's curious that in the early chapters of Zechariah, Zechariah records eight visions. But not only did he have eight visions, he had eight visions on one night. Not only did he have eight visions on one night, he gives us the date so that scholars have been able to pinpoint precisely when it occurred. So on the night of February 15, 519 B.C., I don't know what Zechariah had for dinner, but when he went to bed, he had eight visions. In fact, about three weeks from now, we can look back and pinpoint with accuracy, of course, depending how we handle year zero, but we can look back and say, 2,539 years ago tonight, Zechariah didn't have a good night. Eight visions. Now, the visions treat different kinds of pieces of their current situation, such as God's promise to judge the nations that are oppressing Israel, such as the promise to rebuild Zion, but the one that we come to today deals specifically with their spiritual condition. Two parts to the vision. First part is the people's condition. Second part is God's solution. So we begin with the people's condition. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this 
not a man, a burning stick, snatched from the flame, snatched from the fire. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The scene is a kind of a courtroom scene. You have three beings there. You have the angel of the Lord. That angel of the Lord, in a sense, is the judge in the courtroom scene. It's an august presence there. It's the kind of place where you want to mind your P's and Q's. You want to be on your best behavior. You want to stand up straight, look them in the eye. You want to use your yes, ma'ams, and no, sirs. And especially, you want to be careful to dress appropriately for the occasion. That's the scene. Three figures, the angel of the Lord, the judge figure. And then you have the prosecuting attorney, the accuser. Now, the English version calls him Satan. But understand, in the original language, it is a role, not a proper name. It is the role of the accuser, the role of the prosecuting attorney. And then, well, then there's Joshua, the high priest of his people. Now, understand, as high priest of his people, he is not standing there merely to represent himself and his own life. He is standing there representing the entire people of Israel. When we look at him, we are to see not just Joshua, but all the Israelites and their spiritual condition. And when we look at him, we draw back in horror. Because in this important setting, he's come to be before the Lord, to stand before God. And the text says, his clothes were filthy. So his clothes are dirty. We miss it. In our language, let me read to you the words of Old Testament scholar Kenneth Barker, who unpacks what that means. Here's what Barker says. The Hebrew word soim, filthy, is the strongest expression in the Hebrew language for filth of the most vile and loathsome character. Peterson adds, filthy may refer, and other scholars say does refer, to human fecal contamination and to the lack of holiness it entails. So Joshua may have been covered with excrement, only in the vision, of course. Such clothes represent the pollution of sin. To compound the problem, Joshua, that is Israel, contaminated by sin, is ministering in this filthy condition before the angel of the Lord. Webb summarizes, Joshua's filthy clothes represent not only his own sin, but the sin of the whole land, that is, the whole community. None of them is clean in God's sight and therefore qualified to worship and serve him, nor can they do anything about it themselves. It is a problem that only God can solve. So as we stand there viewing this scene, we notice something is wrong, and then the stench clogs our nostrils. And we say, what in the world? How dare you come in to the presence of God in that condition? You should be ashamed.
Now, the text doesn't tell us what the accuser says. We get the sense that he's jabbing, pointing fingers at Joshua. And there's much that he could say about Joshua, about us. Look at him, God. Look at these people. So much shame, so much filth, so much that ought to keep them out of your presence. How in the world do you allow them here? Shame. The accuser has gotten very good at that. He does it to us. When we try to come into the presence of God, what are you doing here? In fact, maybe he has perfected in his use of shame, maybe he has per perfected the Mongolian peasant theory. The story comes out of Stalinist Russia. It is said that in Stalinist Russia, there was a certain psychologist using his training and his gifts in a very evil way. This psychologist, it was said, could get anyone to confess anything, even if they had never done it. Whenever Stalin or any of his henchmen wanted something accomplished, they would send the person to this psychologist, and sure enough, soon the person would be confessing sins they had never even committed, and they would be banished in the gulag of Stalinist Russia. And so a Westerner came and asked, How is it that you manage to bring people to their knees, even people who aren't guilty, to confess all kinds of things. The psychologist said, I work on the Mongolian peasant theory. The what? Let me tell you what it is. I'll tell you a story. And the psychologist told the following story. A man of no account, of no standing, just so ordinary you would never notice him, was picked up and brought to one of the large buildings there and marched into a regal office. Plush carpets, thick hangings on the windows, large oak desk, mahogany walls, and seated behind the desk, a silver-haired, steely-eyed general with commendation medals all over his chest. And he said to this no-account man, I have 10 million rubles. Opened a cabinet, showed him the money. I have 10 million rubles I will give you. Give me? Yes. <laughs> For what? What do I have to do? I have 10 million rubles. They're yours. All you have to do is to push this red button on my desk. That's all. Just push it. What does that mean? If I push the red button, what happens? When you push the red button, an older man, a Mongolian peasant, far, far from here, will immediately drop dead. No pain. He will just die immediately. Well, what did he do? Has nothing to do with that. That's none of your affair. Just push the red button. 
and the 10 million rubles are yours. And so the ordinary man ponders and finally reaches forward and pushes the red button. He is given the 10 million rubles and he goes home. Goes home with the knowledge that somewhere out there a Mongolian peasant died through no fault of his own and that he himself was responsible for that man's death. Anytime the general called to see him, all he had to do was dangle the idea of a Mongolian peasant before him. And he would be so filled with shame, he would do whatever asked. Until one day, five years later, he committed suicide. When he did, officers from the state marched in and pulled a bag with 10 million rubles still intact from beneath his bed. I think the accuser knows your Mongolian peasant and mine. He knew the Mongolian peasant of Joshua. And so as Joshua stands there in his filth, in the presence of God, the accuser is stabbing at him with his finger. You not only have a peasant, you have a whole village of them. Doesn't he do that to you? You walk into church, come into the presence of God. Something says to you, what am I doing here? With all these good people worshiping God. And the shame fills you. The old tapes play. I don't know where they were first recorded. They may first have been recorded by a parent who said to you, just who do you think you are anyway? or by a teacher who said, you'll never amount to anything, or by a bully who said, nobody likes you, everybody hates you, but the tapes start playing. Maybe they play from a dark time in your life, an affair, an abortion, a theft, a lie, but the accuser keeps doing what he does best accusing you, dangling the idea of the Mongolian peasant before you. But then something happens. In the courtroom, there's a sudden sound, a sound of a chair being shoved back, of somebody leaping to their feet, the voice is strong and powerful, and it says, Objection! Objection, Your Honor! It is the voice of one Zechariah calls the branch. That's your defense attorney, the branch. It's a messianic term in Zechariah. You remember we said there were two parts to the dream? 
The first was the people's condition. The second is God's solution. Now the defense attorney stands and says, objection, wait, I have to speak. So we go back to Zechariah 3, this time beginning in verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua. You and your associates seated before you, you who are symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Did you hear that? Take the filthy clothes off of him. Dress him in fine, rich, and clean garments. Put a clean turban on his head. And then that one line at the end of verse 9, God speaks and says, And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. What day are you talking about, God? That day that all cause for shame will be removed. What day are you talking about? Are you talking about that day of which Isaiah wrote when he says, Come now, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be as wool. Was that the day? Or was it the day of which the psalmist wrote? I have removed your sins as far from you as the east is from the west. Is that the day? Or maybe you were speaking about the day of Micah, who said that you would trot our sins underfoot and cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Maybe that's the day to which you referred. Or possibly you were referring to the day that that prodigal son staggered down the lane toward home and the father ran to him, sweeping him up into an embrace of acceptance, weeping over him, wanting to celebrate. Maybe that's the day you meant. Or did you mean that day when the Nazarene stumbled down the Via Dolorosa under the load of the cross, praying out loud, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. Maybe that's the single day you meant. Or maybe you were, may, maybe you were talking about a day in late January of 2019 at Loma Linda University Church when somebody came with a load of shame 
and yet sat listening to Zechariah and heard as though the Spirit speaking to them, saying, Your transgressions I have blotted out, and your sins I will remember no more. Behold, I'm making all things, including you, new. Maybe that's the day. But whenever that day is, it's a day of mercy and grace. Mercy, you see, forgives the act, cleanses the guilt, but grace embraces us and accepts us and heals our shame. Max Lucado says it best with these words, what we need is not just mercy, mind you, but grace. Grace goes beyond mercy. Mercy gave Ruth some food. Grace gave her a husband and a home. Mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance. Grace threw him a party. Mercy prompted the Samaritan to bandage the wounds of the victim. Grace prompted him to leave his credit card as payment for the victim's care. Mercy forgave the thief on the cross. Grace will escort him into paradise. Mercy pardons us. Grace woos and weds us. It is grace that is the answer to our shame. A grace that says you come as you are. You come into the very presence of God no matter your filth. And there your defense attorney says, take away the clothes. Take away that filth. Dress her. Dress him in the riches of my grace because they are home and made new. I want to ask you to think of two questions. Tad Warku is going to sing to us of that amazing grace. As he does so, I want to ask you to think of two questions. Ask yourself, what is the shame that so easily separates me from God? What is it that causes that? And secondly, what is the cure for that shame? What can I do to be healed? Because the truth is simple. He wants you to leave this place in new clothing, healed of shame.